Welcome everyone and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I am the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. Our weekly show Disrupt TV is an opportunity for Ray and I to learn from some of the best and brightest executives on topics of leadership, technology, innovation, industry trends. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guest your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV on Twitter. We've had about 250 guests on our show, so please check out our video podcast on Vimeo and SoundCloud and iTunes as well. This is our 101 episode, uh, so it's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the founder CEO of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to uh, ZDNet and Harvard Business Review and other publications. In my humble opinion, one of the best futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to episode 101. Episode 101 here with my awesome co-host, Bala Ashrar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, one of the top CIO, CMO influences in the world, an author himself, and someone who's been giving a ton of keynotes lately. So, but hey, we're here to celebrate episode 101. So I think Bala, cheers to Aubrey for pulling this off for us. <laughs> I think that's our first one. This has been crazy. Um, this is all I got right now. I'm in, I'm in a hotel in Tokyo. <laughs> Three in the morning, I think. I can't remember. <laughs> but anyway. But, uh, we got, <laughs> so but we wanted to celebrate um, episode 100, 101 as we get into our next 100 episodes. And of course, we've got some awesome guests today. And who do we have in terms of the cast of characters, Mala? So uh, this is a, uh, a different format for us. We're going to have all our guests uh, on at the same time. We'll introduce our first guest, uh, and then we'll have you know, our, our, our other guests uh, chime in throughout the session. Our first guest is uh, Bruce Richardson, Chief Enterprise Strategist at Salesforce. Uh, Bruce joined Salesforce in 2011 as our company's uh, first Chief Enterprise Strategist. He focuses on opportunities outside of traditional CRM market, manufacturing, supply chain. Lately, a lot of focus on blockchain. Hopefully, they'll get a chance to get Bruce's uh, thoughts on blockchain. He's the author of the Platform Chronicles, a popular blog on Medium. Thank you, Bruce. The last one was your best uh, blog, in my opinion. <laughs> Before joining Salesforce, he was the chief strategy officer at Infor, a $3 billion software company best known for its acquisition in the enterprise application market. He's uh, linked to Salesforce, began uh, during his tenure as chief research officer at AMR Research. And his, in his 20-year career with AMR, he initiated and led the firm's coverage of ERP, supply chain management, CRM, e-commerce, cloud computing, and, and much more. He was also the creator of a popular, very popular, First Thing Monday, a newsletter which reached almost 40,000 subscribers in 98 countries. You can follow Bruce on Twitter at First Thing Bruce. Bruce, welcome to the Shrub TV. Thank you, Vala. And Ray. That was a long intro. <laughs> <laughs> I could have given you the short version. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, Bruce. Hey, thanks for being on the show. And, and we'll introduce um, Guy and Nikki as they come along um, as we jump in. Um, we'll do them in their segments. But Guy, Nikki, please jump in as when you hear something very interesting, given that we've all worked with each other in the past. So, Bruce, you're the Uber analyst. Um, and, and I think I've got to ask you this question because, like, in, in my mind, it is still strange not having you as the Uber analyst at every event. 
though you're everywhere, if you were writing a first thing Monday today, like what would be in the headlines this week? You know, um, I'll take a, I don't know, there's been a lot of stuff in the headlines. Uh, I was at a conference yesterday at MIT and uh, every presenter, every panelist talked about uh, Facebook and Cambridge uh, Analytica and the lack of privacy, the future of privacy. Uh, you know, I think everybody's covering that. I think what I would do is to look at some interesting sectors of the market that don't seem to be getting a lot of coverage. And that's probably the sort of synthesis of the next generation of supply chain vendors with kind of broader enterprise performance management. So there's four companies in particular that uh, I really like what they're doing. Um, one is a little company in Southern California called Ubix Labs, U-B-I-X. And uh, they've got this cool thing called the question graph. So you don't have to know anything about data science. You can uh, query the system using NLP, uh, natural language processing. And to me, some of the things, some of the ideas they have are very cool. I've spent a lot of time with them on the phone looking to see if uh, we can get a first joint customer to, to uh, prove it. Second one, I just found out from one of our uh, CPG customers, it's a company in the Bay Area uh, called ERA, A-E-R-A Technology. Very cool company. The founder had been at Business Objects and was at SAP after that. They're doing some really uh, cool things around cognitive computing, linking the supply chain, uh, where their system actually sort of uh, crawls through all of your systems and makes recommendations and allows you also to query the system at, in terms of uh, what can I do to recover from this uh, potential inventory shortfall? What are some of the other things I can do? Two other companies to keep an eye on. One is a company called Intera Systems. And if you ever meet the CEO, he's got a giant brain and uh, his whole world is about cognitive uh, computing. And then the last one is a little company in Atlanta. Uh, the parent company's in Munich, but uh, they're building some cool stuff, including a supply chain uh, control tower for one of the world's best known quick serve restaurants. Taking a whole different approach, and ironically, they're building it on top of the Salesforce platform. So I, I think I would do something on that. The other thing I would do, because um, you know, having a weekly deadline, you always had to think, have things lined up, kind of like you guys do with Disrupt TV, you always want to have next week's show planned. But one thing that uh, puzzles me about blockchain is that uh, no one has written a definitive case study on what it's like to do a pilot or a proof of concept. I've read probably a thousand articles and a bunch of analyst reports on the future of blockchain. No one's really going underneath the covers and saying, what's really happened to those 400 pilots that IBM has? And why haven't they turned into anything beyond a pilot? So I really want to dig into that and find out um, uh, not just one customer, but to talk to as many as possible saying, why isn't this uh, taking off? Hmm. It's funny. So uh, earlier in the year when Ray was at Davos, World Economic Forum, we had the opportunity to interview a dozen guests live from Davos. And um, no question, blockchain was the top, most popular topic followed by AI and I think mixed reality. And, and, um, and so what do you think is gonna be the big topic, at, you know, as we recap 2018? Certainly last year, I think it was all about AI, machine learning, deep learning, neural networks. Every company really demonstrated their desire and they acquired companies and showed their strong interest, including our company with AI. Will 2018 continue to be more about 
artificial intelligence and, and, and its impact on future economy and, and business? Or do you think blockchain will, will, will start to share some use cases and give us better insights in terms of how companies are adopting the technology? You know, if I look at my calendar uh, and the meetings that I have with customers coming up, you know, throughout the summer and into the early fall, it's all blockchain all the time. I think part of it is, you know, there's a little bit of confusion as to what it is and what it can do. There's a lot of skepticism. I mean, our own company, uh, we have skepticism. We've got, you know, the hardcore fanatics that think this is great and are dreaming all kinds of use cases. Um, we have another group of hardcore skeptics who think it's uh, technology in search of an application. And then there's sort of the frozen middle that are waiting for us to decide um, which um, party is right, the, uh, the believers or the skeptics. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of focus on blockchain, uh, mostly these days about uh, track and trace and a lot of identity management. Um, it'll be interesting to see if the smart contracts uh, use case develops, and I'm watching a lot of uh, examples of where customers want to use it for next-gen next customer loyalty. You know, you may have seen that uh, Panera Bread got hacked, and they got in through the customer loyalty program. Could we have done something with blockchain that uh, made it a lot more secure? So those are some of the things that, um, why I think blockchain is going to stay in the news for at least the next 12 to 24 months. You know, that's a great point, Bruce. I mean, this privacy thing keeps popping up, right? And everyone's worried about it. And we talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, and, and people think, you know, maybe blockchain is the answer. Blockchain could start and be, be part of that. But there's a lot more going on, right, when, when people think about this. And when you tie that to what's going on with CRM being like 30 years old, cloud in the CRM being 20, I mean, we see patterns and shifts. You've seen this throughout, you know, just every 15 years, every 10 years, something happens. What are the trends? Like when you think about, you know, what's going to happen in the next five years, um, lessons learned, is it, is it the sweets always win, right? Or, or best of breed has a shot. Like what do you see those kind of things popping up? You know, that's a good question. I mean, I'd say if we stay close to home and just think about um, kind of the evolution that we've seen in the CRM market, you know, in the beginning there was SFA, whether or not you bought a package or you went to the cloud or you used Excel to manage your leads and your pipeline. And then gradually we, it spread from Salesforce automation, uh, CPQ, now AI, where you're getting uh, 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 lead scoring and things like that. And then it expanded, went to, uh, in our case, it went to service cloud and then went into marketing, then went into commerce and now uh, AI and analytics. So, you know, the suite is getting broader. I think what's going to happen next, I think there's two things. One is I'm meeting with a lot of customers that want to put their customer in the middle of every business process. And it first happened, I had dinner at one of the Rick Bayless restaurants in Chicago, great Mexican food. And we're upstairs in a uh, private room and I happened to be sitting next to the then CIO at Johnson Controls. And I knew they were a big, uh, I think an SAP user. And I was asking her about ERP and how that was going. And she said, you know, I'd really like to redesign all my systems. She said, I would like to put buildings because she was part of the HVAC building automation side. She said, if we put the building in the middle and treated that as if it was our customer, how would we redesign all of the business systems and processes around that? And I thought that was really insightful. So when I meet with our account teams and customers, I said, what would you do if you put the customer in the middle? So you've got the front end applications that companies like ours provide for sales, service, marketing, commerce. But if the customer's in the middle, 
what the customer really cares about is the fulfillment stuff. They want to know, when am I getting the product? What about the pricing? If it's not in stock, when can I get it? So I think more and more uh, CRM is going to evolve to really cut, uh, connect front office to the back office. Not to say that you know, we'd get into the warehouse management or transportation management space, although we do have customers asking for us to integrate all that. So I think two things are going to happen. One is that kind of end-to-end from uh, first touching the customer to getting product to them, getting the right product at the right time, right price, all of that. I think the second thing is uh, deeper vertical uh, specialization. And I'll give you an example. I was at a, a dinner last week sponsored by Propel PLM. They happen to build a product lifecycle management app on our platform. <clears throat> at the table next to me was uh, one of the top execs from Desktop Metal. And at the next table over was um, one of the top execs, actually the founder of Onscape, which is a new uh, CAD cloud company. So we got to talking and it turns out there's a project underway now where we're gonna connect Health Cloud with Propel PLM, with the next gen CAD, with the next gen uh, 3D metal printing, which is cool. And one of the use cases that really got me was uh, making um, prosthetics. So uh, sadly, we're coming up on the fifth anniversary of the Boston uh, Marathon bombing. And a lot of people lost uh, limbs, especially legs. And uh, <clears throat> If you think of that partnership with Salesforce, Propel, Onscape for the CAD design, and then Desktop Metal, uh, you'd be able, for with putting the customer in the middle, designing that next-gen prosthetic, or uh, typically a person has multiple of these, uh, 15, 16, whatever it might be. The point is, we could have an end-to-end -end business process that had never existed before. Bless you. Two, two takeaways with two stories. They always center around fantastic restaurants. <laughs> and, Bruce, Bruce was, <laughs> and he has photographic memory. It's, I'm always amazed that he knows every company, every leader at the company and what they do. So, so Bruce, okay, so we've gone from 360 view of the customer to workflows that integrate different lines of business, including stakeholders outside your company. Let's talk about data privacy. You know, what does the future look like? Who owns the data? You know, do we, do, what, what are you, what's your view in light of what's happened in our industry where most people are now, they've kind of woke up to, wow, technology could have a big impact on society when companies don't realize how the data is being used, for example. What are your well, thoughts? You know, I think there's a <clears throat> sort of, there's a couple of different sentiments. Again, going back to the MIT event yesterday, it was all about IoT. And of course, one of the questions was, what are you doing with all that data? So one of the companies was uh, Nightingale, and they have this uh, cool um, thing. It looks like an iPhone that plugs into a wall, and basically it's a sleep device that it bounces sound waves off the room to help you fall asleep faster. And their thing is they've done um, some work with some sleep labs uh, at various hospitals and found that this particular device gets you to sleep 38% faster or sooner, well, I guess that's the same thing. Uh, so one of the questions that came up was, what are you gonna do with all that data if you know Vala's sleeping patterns? Or, Ray, you obviously don't sleep because you're yeah, two in the same place two nights in a row. I'm, I'm, I'm a low volume user of Nightingale Smart Home. Right, so uh, it seems that every device that's collecting data, people now wanna know, no one ever thought about it. You know, when you signed up for Facebook, you gladly gave away information or signed up for LinkedIn. Uh, you know, after the, uh, after all that data was, uh, you know, taken by Cambridge Analytica, uh, I went 
and downloaded my profile from Facebook. Uh, I'm easily among the dullest people in the world because they've only sold my stuff to a handful of companies, including Target. Now, um, it, was a, it was an odd list of companies that have my data, but there wasn't very much in there that you, you know, you would have hacked me and uh, just moved on. But I think about uh, <laughs> Morton's Capital Grill, right, right. Uh, Ruth Chris. And that was just lunch. It's all the check-in. It's all the check-in to restaurants. I mean, uh, that's that would have done it. No, but I, you know, compared to Facebook, Google knows a lot more about me, and I think Alexis, Alexa, and Google Home will know uh, tons about us and what's going to happen to all that information. So, uh, the other sentiment is. Well, so people are saying, yeah, I quit Facebook. I don't have a profile. That was a lot of the MIT professors. And then other people said, you know, forget it. Um, your information's everywhere. There's nothing you can do about it. Uh, just be smart about it. But I think it's a little late now since people are collecting this data for 20 years. The stuff that worries me is, uh, you know, companies applying for patents that uh, could involve all of our DNA, that uh, they want to own that as part of credit reports. And uh, so I think it's frightening um, that there's really no end in sight for what can be collected and uh, probably used against you. Well, no, it's a really good point because um, one of the things that isn't there today is um, data privacy and especially biometrics. Um, those aren't yours, right? Those can be put into a court of law easily. Um, and it's, it's very interesting. But hey, let's pull in Nikki and Guy here real quickly. Nikki, where are you, where are you at? Uh, where are you calling in from? So. From Denver, from snowy Denver, actually. You're in so, okay, cool. So what's so so? What do you see that's going on with uh, you know with with the privacy issue and what's happening and you know pulling on Bruce's thoughts as well? Yeah, I mean, I think the part about it that fascinates me the most is actually the marriage of that privacy with the blockchain discussion, right? It's like, is there a way to use blockchain to somehow uh, better encrypt or protect consumer data? And I love the idea. I think it's been surfaced a lot of times, but never really seriously. And I think blockchain kind of makes the discussion a little more serious around um, what if it's the consumer's blockchain, it's the consumer's key, the consumer owns what permissions they share with whom explicitly so that it's not a case of, um, you know, because I transacted with you, you own the data. It's because I transacted with you, I gave you permission to have some of my data. I think that's a very interesting angle to that. Sure. So data privacy is a human right being delivered by blockchain. Um, that's very interesting. Key on your end, like what's, what's going on on that side? Where do you see that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think when we look at the retail space, right, the big, the big uh, holy grail, I feel, is all these retailers are chasing after getting more data about each one of us because they think they can sell us, uh, you know, sell Bruce another Morton Steakhouse uh, gift certificate and, and sell Nikki a, <laughs> A snow shovel right now is still snowing in Denver and sell me a pocket square, right? Um, so I think that's the, that's the challenge. I think these, retailers, these retailers have to have to take heed of what happened with Facebook and other stuff is that we as consumers, I think, are going to start, you know, not, not accepting some of this stuff. But to Bruce's point, I think, unfortunately, part of it, the genie's out of the bottle. You know, we've been sharing data now for 10, 15, 20 plus years. Let's not even talk about all the data that the credit agencies and our credit cards have on us. Um, I mean, it's, an, it's amazing how much stuff you can go out there and find. I think it's a matter of just, you know, we got to be smart. We got we to, gotta, not to sound like an old man, but you got to tell our kids to be smart with it. You know, I tell my 10-year-old all the time, 
the internet forgets nothing. So yeah. don't be stupid, you know, be smart about it. Realize that something you do that seems funny today in 10 years isn't going to be so funny. And guess what? You can't erase it. Um, and, you know, I always joke, thank goodness. Oh, I wait, I, I, thought, I thought I had the right to be forgotten. What well, I, to that? <laughs> that's what we thought, right? But we don't. I mean, I always joke, thank God we didn't have, uh, have Facebook and cell phones and all that when I went to college because uh, I don't know, it'd be bad. Bad enough. <laughs> I, listen, so I apologize. I should have done the intros of all three guests at the beginning. So I'm going to do it now and Aubrey will cut it and make sure, you know, we do this properly. But uh, Nikki Baird, Vice President of Retail Innovation at Aptos. Nikki's charged with accelerating retailers' ability to innovate. Uh, you've been a top global retail uh, influencer for over a decade, uh, regular contributor to Forbes and, and all, all major uh, publications, Economist, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today. You can follow Nikki on Twitter at Nikki Baird. So you, you can see the name on, 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 the, on the panels and just the at symbol before that. So welcome. And, and, uh, and, and, and Guy uh, Corton, Vice President of Industry Solutions Strategy, uh, uh, for Infor, uh, 20 years of experience in technology space, specifically the supply chain. Now with Infor Retail, uh, Guy is responsible for developing leading thought leadership in the industry and solutions team. Uh, another incredible follow on Twitter at G Corton. So I just wanted to get the introductions out of the way. Make sure. The most important part of all is that, that I used to work for Ray. Ray was yes, yes, that's Ray was really important. You also really used to work really for Bruce. So. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you used to work for Bruce as well, I think. Well, I, I, we, we kind of did when I was at I too, and Bruce is an A part. So. <laughs> so we have incredible retail expertise. So uh, Nikki, um, you know, you hear about Sears, you hear about Toys R Us, so there may be a misconception about the pace of innovation and, and, and in, in retail. Can you talk to us about your point of view? I mean, I think there are retailers that are doing amazing work. So what are your thoughts in terms of, in general, adoption of some of this new emerging technology to improve the customer experience, grow revenue, and really do some cool things in the retail space? Yeah, I thought what Bruce said about putting the customer at the center was really great because I think that's the biggest challenge that retailers have yeah. is I think they actually think they already have the customer at the center of their enterprise and they don't. And so they, they think I'm, you know, evolving the customer experience or I'm innovating around the customer experience. But what they're really doing is, is kind of doing that from an outward perspective, but from an inward perspective, they're still protecting their supply chain, they're protecting the systems that they're, they've implemented that are 15 or 20 years old. Oh. Did we lose Nikki? I think Nikki yeah, froze out, but uh, you know, there's definitely, you're back, you're back. Oh, there we go. Oh, sorry, you lost me, David. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect timing. Um, so protecting their supply chain, protecting their yeah. internal process. Yeah. Protecting supply chain, protecting uh, a product-oriented company, right? They're, they're really, truly a product-oriented company that is delivering it to customers. But when you try to be customer-centric, it means product secondary, right? Product is something that enables the customer experience, but it's not the be-all, end-all of that customer experience. And so if you haven't changed your orientation from product orientation to customer orientation, right, you're still, you're still trying to protect all that stuff. So I think that's the biggest sort of friction that exists in retail today. So, so, so Guy, yeah, you know, I, uh, go ahead, go ahead, sorry, Ray, go. Oh, oh, oh no problem, go ahead. So. No, I think about my experience going to Disney four years ago versus today. 
Today, I just waved my wrist uh, and I unlocked the door to my room. I buy things, I fast pass. In fact, after eight days at Disney, the first time I have to reach in my back wallet, it just feels weird. Like, wow, this is just, this stinks. I just want to wave my wrist. Uh, but it took a billion dollars of investment. It wasn't just a magic man. It was the, the, the new locks and the whole infrastructure. So is it that it requires a heavy lift ultimately to really transform the retail experience? And maybe that's why there may be a perception of slow adoption or is it something else, culture or, or leadership or combination? I think it's also technology related. I mean, uh, and I, by that, I mean the way that leadership perceives technology in a retail enterprise. I think there's, especially when we're talking about traditional retail, I mean, part of the reason why there's so much disruption happening is because there's companies that are coming at retail from a tech perspective first, like they're a tech first company yeah. that happens to also serve customers. And retail was, I'm a product company that serves customers and technology was an expense that I minimized, right? It was, it's, it's not something that I really saw as strategic to my business. And that's the transformation that has to happen. You know, if you'd asked Disney what they were four years ago, they might have told you, well, we're an entertainment company, but what role does really, you know, technology doesn't play a huge role in it. It's an enabler, but it's not strategic. And now I, you know, they kind of have to tell you, well, I'm a, I gotta be a technology company in order to be successful at this. And I think that's also the challenge that retailers face is too many executives who come up through store operations or supply chain who are like, that's a cost. I don't want to spend money on that. And I mean, even like look at Nordstrom, right? They acquired two tech companies and some of the blowback was, well, you know, here we go. Here's a retailer who's going to reinvent software that they could just buy off the shelf. But on the other hand, you know, yeah, you can say, oh, stick to your knitting. You're supposed to be a product company, but no, you're not. You are supposed to be an experience company and you've got to invest in technology in order to enable that. So maybe Nordstrom needs to be a tech company and they need to acquire tech companies in order to get there. That's a great point. You know, that's a great point, Nikki. I'm like floating around here in Tokyo and the number of robots, VR experiences, integrated like light and water fountain shows. I mean, this, like, this place is like freaking like Las Vegas, like for retail. I mean, like everything is going on at the same time as I walk through Ginza. Like people are popping around VR headsets everywhere. Like I've never seen so many VR headsets and robots in my life. So, I mean, are there lessons learned across the globe? I mean, were, were certain things work in other areas or is it just Japan that I'm actually experiencing this? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, like the robot thing is a really great question. That's one that I'm kind of chewing on right now because on the one hand you've got, um, and you can, you know, you just do a search on robots and retail and Google will throw you 50% of articles are you know, robots are going to kill the retail store associate, right? And the other 50% of articles are, wow, there's like more people in a, there's more employees in a go store than there is in a regular convenience store. And this is supposed to be the robotics kind of store. So how does that work? So that, I mean, it's like, I don't think, I don't think we've settled this all out yet exactly what the implications of all of this is, right? Robots, they they do enable things like you know it's easier for them to spot when there's stock outs and tell somebody that there needs to be more product on the shelf but are they really better at answering customer questions i'm not sure and and especially when you're talking about the store somebody you know either got in a car or got on public transportation or at least walked down the street to go there 
Like, why would I want to have an automated experience delivered there when I could have had that right here on my laptop? That just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me that people would sign up for that when you can get that from the comfort of your home, right? You've got to offer some kind of personal one-to-one -one kind of experience in the store and not through a screen or, you know, robotic eyes and hands or whatever it is. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm going to open it up to, 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 to all of us. Um, you know, Nikki just, you know, she talked about changing consumer behavior. So there's consumer disruption, talked about technology disruption, talked about competitive disruption with what a Walmart or an Amazon or companies that are coming into the re retail space and delivering a whole new experience. And Certainly, there's always going to be economic disruption, you know, with pressures in terms of income and expenses. So you've got all these four dimensions of changing behavior, technology, business models, competitors. Which one of these will ultimately be the catalyst that will force maybe the traditional brick and mortar retail stores to maybe think more like a tech company, software company, like an Amazon? Guy, Bruce, Nikki, your yeah. thoughts? I mean, I think it's all the above, right? I don't think it's it's one particular driver for all industry, right? Mm -hmm. I think each industry is going to face different things. Uh, each retailer is going to face different things. But I think you're absolutely right. I think what Nikki and Bruce were saying in terms of these disruptors is spot on. I think we're seeing it all the time. I think, you know, we're seeing some retailers actually um, embrace it and do some really interesting things with it. I see some retailers like we see in all industries who put their head in the sand and say, nope, nope, not happening to us. Um, and I would push the point that all these all these retailers have to think, you know, not like technology companies, but more like digital or data companies. I know we just talk about data and how it's, you know, we have data privacy issues, but it is really about how do I extract bits and bytes off of things I never could before and now either do, you know, improvements on my existing business or I uncover something that is transformative. And I think that's that is the the promise of this digital and data side of the business. So whether you're a, you're a Macy's or a Nordstrom's or a tractor supply or whatever, you know, CVS or Kroger, right? You all of a sudden have access to a number of digital touch points and data that you can start doing better measurement, but you can also start trying to uncover, you know, really new opportunities and try to find new things, whether it's in your supply chain, whether it's in your merchandising, your pricing, your business model, your labor, right? How do you interact better with your labor, things like that. So I think that's the, that's the exciting part. But you're right, it's, it, it's unprecedented disruption. But again, I would argue maybe, you know, I feel like we sat through this, you know, 20 years ago when Walmart started coming big and it's, oh my goodness, like Walmart's destroying everybody in retail. You know, retail's dead, we're just going to Walmart, buy everything at Walmart. You know, Walmart's pretty good, yeah, but they're not the only player out there. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, it, the only comment I would make is, retailers are spending a ton on innovation, you know, even setting up, you know, innovation labs. And I think they should really spend more of the money on training the people in the stores. I mean, it's just amazing how people don't be able to find anyone to wait on you to take your money. Um, so I, I look at companies seriously like a Blue Day, that their whole business is all about uh, measuring the effectiveness of store associates. Do you have the right people doing the right job? And they show these incredible lifts that stores would get um, by th rethinking staffing and the skills and all that. And yet they have, you know, a handful of uh, active customers. I, I just, I find the state of retail kind of appalling from the customer experience. I, you, you know, know I think, Bruce, I agree. I mean, it's interesting. I just had a conversation. I was in Europe two weeks ago and 
had a conversation with, uh, with, with the guy that ran LVMH's supply chain and, and he brought that exact point up. He said, listen, it's about the labor. You know, it's like, I, I want labor. It's not just a transactional person or, you know, point. It's, it's really strategic. How do I leverage my labor to be smart about my inventory, what's available? How do we just be smart about, about being a human and being, you know, in that environment? Because, and Nikki's point, right? I walk into the store for a reason. Right. I don't do it on my phone or on my laptop or my, my, my tablet because I want, there's something else there. So is that store associate prepared to meet my expectations when I walk in? Because it's not just because I feel like I should walk in. Right. I, I, I can just sit there and order it and have it delivered to me by a thousand different, you know, variables, but right. this one is where I want to walk in a store. There's something there. Yeah. Well, and I think, well, you know, that, actually, uh, which, um, you know, which, which disruptor is really the one that's going to drive everything. When you look at it right now, every every retailer that's closing its doors or you know giving up the ghost, it's actually the economic model that's killed them. So we haven't even fully seen expressed the other three disruptors that are happening. Like this is sort of just phase one. So it's not it's not a retail apocalypse. It's we're taking out all of the all of the weak retailers from a financials perspective, right? They've highly leveraged themselves. They didn't have any money that they could invest in updating their experience at all. But there are some retailers now who are investing to completely automate their experience. And then will they win? I don't know because again, like you just said, why would you go to the store? You, you know, like if I can get that at home, if I can get it on my phone in the parking lot, why do I need to go in the store? Why would you bother trying to highly automate that experience? So will those investments pay off? I mean, maybe for Walmart, it's a low service model. You know, you've got somebody like Saks on the other hand saying, absolutely not. We're totally investing in our store employees. And those are the people that are differentiating for us. And they've got a completely different margin. They've got a completely different economic model, but they also have a different promise that they're making to their customers. So I think, I think we still have to wind our way through some of those other disruptors around how well do these really support the promises that I'm making to my customers? Do I have coherent promises that I'm making to my customers? And I don't think we've even gotten to that level of disruption yet. Wow. You know, I think you make a great point there. And one of the things is, you know, you have to reflect back to your brand promise. And when you do introduce friction into the brand promise, it's got to be an experience people want to have. Right. It's something and some, you know, you walk in, some people want the high touch. If I walk into a, a Ritz or Four Seasons, I like the high touch. Right. I'm walking into a Marriott or Hilton. I don't I just want a self-service check in and use my mobile key and be in there. Right. And so we're, we're seeing that kind of dichotomy, even among the same people, the same persona. It's very, very contextual, very, very dependent and very unpredictable, which is which is creating some chaos. Now, I actually got a question for, for, for the three of you, because this is kind of interesting. Everyone here has been an analyst before. <laughs> so everyone here is now I see the left out. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time for you, Vala. Come to the dark side. <laughs> we retire to the, the dark side. Poverty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Anyways, <laughs> but it's getting how do those how those experiences change the way you guys look at strategy, especially in the space, given what you know, because you you, you have some very, very interesting perspectives, being able to come in and out of you know, whichever side you think is the dark side. <laughs> with you, Nikki, though. So. Yeah, yeah I, I thought I'd move to the dark side. That's not where I am. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, I think it definitely brings, like, 
So I'm at a tech company now. I came out of the analyst world. And before that, I was a retailer and a consultant. So I've done absolutely everything you can do around retail technology. And what, what I try to bring to the table is we have to look at this from all sides, right? Like as a tech company, there's, there's a lot of pressure and incentive to eat your own dog food, right? And to, to drink the Kool-Aid and all those other, you know, stupid analogies, whatever they are, you're supposed to like live and breathe your products. But, but you have to spend a lot of your time thinking about what problems do our customers have? How do we help solve those problems? And, and a lot of times the analyst in me says, they don't even know what their problems are. So we have to help educate them about what those problems are. And we have to think through, you know, the, the consulting world is getting disrupted. When you think about, you know, cloud solutions and SaaS and uh, microservices and all of these kinds of things, right? You're not, there's no, I remember back in my day, you know, we had a partner that um, we, I worked in the strategy practice. We had delivered this great strategy for this company. It required a global ERP selection process. And the partner on the implementation side was like, million dollar contract, million dollar contract, right? And it's like, those, those don't exist anymore. Nobody is buying implementations that cost seven figures. And if they are, I would say, you might want to reconsider that. But that, so now as a consulting company, what do you do? How do you deliver value? How do you participate in an environment where the technology theoretically should be easy enough that you don't have to spend, you know, six or seven figures to actually get it working and running for your company. So being able to kind of have that full, what does this mean for this player? What does this mean for that player? Um, I think that really helps kind of try to get people thinking outside of their box because everybody wants to be in their box. So you get some outside in, good competitive analysis, real, real world kind of practical guidance um, into a company that they never would have gotten before. Guy, what, Guy, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree with what Nikki said. I think that's spot on. I think the one thing that I learned sort of being in the analyst world and coming back to vendor and going back and forth um, is just, you know, you realize very quickly that to Nikki's point, like we're supposed to eat our own dog food. But when you're in the analyst world, you realize, hey, there are other companies out there that do some really, really interesting stuff, right? They do some really cool stuff. Um, the way I always say it is this, they've got someone that's willing to cut them a check, you know, every quarter, every six months, every year for something. So they're doing something right. You know, you might not like them. You might want to throw some fud out there. You might think that, you know, they're terrible or their, their software stinks or the technology stinks. But the reality is, you know, we're all, we're all doing something okay. Cause for the most part, we're getting someone paying us some money, uh, to, to provide a service and to provide some kind of value to that, that customer. So I think there's a certain sense of humility that comes with that, realizing that, you know, just because my algorithm is built by a bunch of really smart people, there's a bunch of smart people out there building other algorithms too that are competing just as hard with us uh, than anybody else. So I think it's, it's a lot of humility that comes with sort of seeing both sides of the table. Wow, humility through customer validation. Bruce, what do you think? You know, the one thing I miss about the uh, analyst world, and there's a lot that I do miss, but I missed having the 360 view of everything that was happening in a market. You think about it, uh, I got to know every single vendor in that space. I got to know their customers. I spoke at their user conferences or I was on their advisory boards, whatever. And it's amazing how much you got to know about a market because, you know, you could vet every vendor's story with every other competitor in the market. And you really had, I think you had a lot more knowledge than anyone inside any of the vendor companies did. And, uh, you know, I thought that was a lot of fun to be able to do that. And then 
if you if you're passionate enough and really live it, uh, you get great insights into where the whole market's going. And people would pay a lot of money for uh, that kind of advice to get a sense for uh, are we on the right path for all this stuff, and are we going to miss the the next big opportunity? So that's a cool thing. Absolutely. Um, so so you all, you all advise and you meet with hyper growth startups all the way to fortune 1000 companies have you noticed greater appetite for uh being obsessed about data being obsessed about improving the customer experience and if so which line of business or which cxo is most likely to champion this improvement in in terms of customer experience and becoming a data-driven uh, corporation is, is it the CMO is it a chief experience officer chief revenue who which line of business is carrying the torch in terms of this transformation of using data and insights to really deliver mass personalization at scale in a meaningful way anyone my, my view I think it's distributed I don't think you could point to any C but specific uh, C discipline and saying they're really driving that sometimes it's top down how often is the ceo in your meeting and i know like in next week you're meeting a fortune 10 company but bruce in general how often do you see the ceo in a meeting as folks are talking about you know developing their short-term uh, investment thesis uh only when the company is scared to death of failure and it's at that point where mm -hmm. the ceo knows that they have to drive change mm -hmm. That they're in there, it's a huge risk, and they're feeling an enormous amount of pressure from the board to to do something, to act, and uh, they're getting their whole management team together. I mean, you know, it happened. I remember we had uh, a large, the CEO of a very large uh, CPG company, well-known uh, beverage company, and he brought his entire management team in to do an ignite session to rethink how they had to change their supply chain, supply chain of all things, wow. asking a CRM company for supply chain insights. So, you know, they, um, they spent uh, three days with us rethinking everything that they were doing, really wanting to make some changes. One third of the meetings that I go, the CEO is there. So I'm, I'm, if I compare it to even two years ago, uh, I think some of the topics that we're discussing are boardroom discussions now, privacy, security, scale, moving to the cloud, AI, AI, AI. Um, um, so at least a third of my meetings. I'm going to Europe uh, in two weeks. All my meetings are with CEOs. So, so and that's about a dozen. So anyway, it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised that, 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 and I'm not sure what the motivation is for these folks being in the meetings. I don't know if it's what Bruce is saying. I, I suspect probably half of them are thinking about, it's time for us to really think big. What about you, Guy and, and, and Nick? Yeah, I was going to say to, to Bruce's point, I mean, I, I've seen you know, enough CEOs in the meetings, and it's what I've been pleasantly surprised most recently is that the CEOs are coming in, not because maybe they are scared, they're not showing it, but they're genuinely interested from a transformational standpoint to have a discussion about how do they transform their business, how do they, what Bruce and Nikki were saying about making the customer center, right, making the customer key to their processes and what do they do tomorrow and the next day and in five months six months to start planning for that and what's interesting is one of the most recent meetings i had with a european retailer and this their ceo and their ceo was the ceo was was already seeing six nine ten twelve twenty four months ahead and it was a coo's job to be like well let's pump the brakes you know we we gotta like yes we want to get there but let's let's figure out how do we get there and do it in a way that we don't get burned but it was it was reassuring because the CEO is like, no, 
we know we need to get here. Like, this is no longer an option. This, but he was excited about it. Like, he wasn't fearful that he was going to get overrun by some of the big retailers. But he was like, hey, this is a great opportunity for us. Let's take advantage of it. Let's get on this. Let's figure out how we do it. Let's get the customer in the center. Let's use digital. Let's use, you know, data. Let's reinvent our supply chain to make that possible, right? And that was what was really exciting from my standpoint. Yeah, I, I wish I could say that I'm seeing more CEOs. I mean, I do see more um, projects that are being defined from a top-down perspective, but where I'm concerned, at least from the retailer point of view, is that it's still the CIO. It's not the right, it's not the right guy, right? And I think um, a lot of times it's the CIO because they're trying to make that case for educating the business around this is a digital transformation. And when I say this is digital transformation, I don't mean e-commerce because in retail, digital means e-commerce more often than it means like the whole of technology. Right. But that well, it's a mobile site. transformation, um, you know, it's the CIO who's saying, listen, you want me to be faster. You want me to be more flexible. You want, you want me to deliver business capability you know, in real time, and I can't do that with what I've got. So I've got to change what I've got. And that's really kind of the, the driver right now that we're seeing in a lot of these discussions. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Hey, and Guy, you know, like, you know, the hot topic right now in retail really is last mile hurdle, right? Yeah. And you've been talking about that for a while. Um, are customers, are consumers completely leaning on e-commerce to get there? How can retailers handle this? Are they going to get to that last mile? Because that's that's part of the other half of the experience, the operations. Like, it doesn't get there. Who cares? You know. Well, yeah, it's it's you know, to Nikki's point, like a digital strategy is not a cool little website or a mobile app because, as pretty as that is, if I don't get that last mile fulfillment done, uh, it 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 actually will actually I think be counter to or negative because now all of a sudden you have this great front end experience and you don't get your product right, so it makes it even worse because because you had these high expectations. Oh, how easy it was for me to navigate the, the website to find exactly what I wanted. And then your system can't fulfill that last mile. And I think what, you know, it's, it's, I, I sort of use this proverb, right? It's the last mile, but it does start with the first step. I think part of that is for last mile, I think people need to start really thinking about how their supply chain, their network is finely tuned to ensure the last mile is taken care of, right? Because the last mile, a lot of times what we're seeing is, yeah, last mile is done, but man, I ram it through by spending extraordinary amounts of money on air freight or things like that to get it to you because I promised it to you in, in an hour or in a week or what have you. So I have to do whatever it takes to get there and I blow up my margin. So, right, so if I don't know all that stuff beforehand, how do I, how do I then better you know, get you the last mile? But I think we're gonna see a lot of, you know, last mile is gonna take a lot of different forms. Right, whether it's a traditional you leveraging, you know, the carriers today to get your last mile packaging, whether it's what I call sort of last mile sort of inventory dispensers, right? So I was just walking through LaGuardia today, Uniqlo, Best Buy, all these guys are starting to put, you know, vending machines. So yeah. now what happens with those? Like that's a last mile delivery. Um, captured audience. Um, I'm in the land of vending machines. You're oh, exactly. You find there, right? <laughs> Alibaba has vending machines for cars. Oh well, yeah, and I mean, I remember going to Japan and, and some of the things I saw in vending machines. I will not repeat over the air, but oh, you can't talk about this here. You can't talk about those things. Like, what the hell? But you pay you, first. You pay up front. You pay up front. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. But you think about it, and you know, I'm sitting here in New York. And it was interesting, I wrote down some statistics because this is what fascinates me about last mile is like home delivery in New York, in the city of New York has gone up 30% in the last 10 years. Not unexpected, right? 85% of deliveries today are for domestic. And this is only supposed to grow. And I think it's something like there's a hundred, 
and 60,000, 160,000 truck deliveries a day in New York City, in Manhattan. And that's going to go up by 2040 to almost a quarter of a million. So your last mile fulfillment now has a physical constraint, which is we've all been to Manhattan. We all know what it's like when you're walking around or driving around. The constraints, you have UPS trucks, FedEx trucks, other delivery mechanisms. That is only going to get worse. So the question becomes, how do we manage that last mile fulfillment? Start with the network. Start with that first understanding what it takes. Yeah. Then we got to solve that last mile from a physical standpoint. I think that's that's going to be the big challenge. Is this, is this why Amazon has a patent for a floating warehouse? Blip. Yep. The, the phones are getting recharged on streetlights, so you constantly have charged drones. <laughs> <laughs> well, to your point, I think we you know we laugh about it because I think yeah it's funny and we see the commercials like for Audi which has all the drones flying around and trying to escape them right. <laughs> but I think it's going to come down to that is no longer going to be a nice to have. It's going to be, we're going to need to do this because we physically can no longer I mean, I think that's why Amazon's buying a tremendous like lockers everywhere. Right. I think that's why you're seeing delivery by, by robots in something. Like printing Texas. drones, all of these drones. things to accelerate. Yeah. Could, could, could Actually, get underwater warehouses. Yeah. 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 So I think we're going to see, you know, we're going to, it's going to be a necessity where we're going to, like the FAA is going to have to ease up and say, yeah, you can send drones out of sight lines to deliver stuff. Um, so it, there's going to be a whole host of things. And, you know, what's fascinating is you think about last mile delivery. I was, I was in Paris two weeks ago and, and now you're starting to see these retails, like there's a Nicholas retailer, which sells wine, but they have a storage room in the back. So what do they do? They accept packages, then they'll hold it for you and you go there and pick it up. Right. Nice. So they're selling wine. Nice. They're, going hold, they're going to hold your, you know, the, the transistor radio you bought on Amazon in their back storage room for you to go pick up. So, well, you know, Amazon is delivering packages a inside of Ray's new house. They actually have ability to come inside and leave a package. Well, I think Ray's new house is like the future, right? Where he has a 3D printer and a drone landing spot on the roof and everything. So. He's never there. That's right. He's never there. So. <laughs> So, so oh, what will retail look like in five years? I mean, Nikki, starting with you. I mean, what's I mean, I see the smart mirrors and the use of augmented virtual for like in-store training. I think it was uh, I don't know, it was Home Depot or somebody that 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 started to use that tech. What what will be the you know something that in five years will really, really significantly in your view improve the the, the customer experience where they want to go inside, not just order from the parking lot? Yeah, I think. I think actually the, the most important change coming to retail in the next five years is going to be more event spaces and stores. So not technology per se, but having more of, uh, like if you think of REI, does a really good job with this, right? They have like a classroom style where people can come in and do presentations and they tie that into digital, they tie that into the store experience. I think we'll see more retailers doing more around experiences in that sense, where they're actually clearing floor space, they're dedicating space for more personal interactions to happen. I think they have to double down on the personal side, mm. as opposed to investing more technology in stores per se. We're seeing that in Boston, I agree wow. with you. I went to a uh, reception that was sponsored by the Boston College Athletic Department, but it was at the big Under Armour store on Boylston Street in Boston's Back Bay. My wife recently, uh, she's on the board of Boston Ballet, she recently went to uh, a special ballet event at the Tesla store also on Boylston in pretty much the same spot 
is where the Under Armour store used to be. You know, there was probably no other reason why she would have gone to Tesla. And, you know, now she wants me to test drive some of the new say she buy a car? Because <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately I was on the road when my wife wanted it for me. <laughs> You can get the new X going. I love that. I love that. <laughs> well, hey, we got we 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 should keep going through the trends, but we do got a very interesting question that's coming in through Twitter, also on our chat, and uh, from Zachary Jeans. So, but uh, let's go through the trends as well. So, yeah, one of the questions he had was, uh, will anyone stop uh, Amazon takeover of all of retail? Uh, and also a question about trends. I yeah, sure and, so. and retail. Yeah. <laughs> I. I I sure hope somebody, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that Amazon and Walmart are going to duke it out, right? They're already duking it out. They're like, they're at the bottom of the race to the bottom. And they're all about convenience and low price and, and value promises that are not necessarily lifestyle driven. Now, I would argue that Amazon is trying to kind of move up out of that. Mm -hmm. Alexa is not necessarily a bottom of the barrel kind of value proposition to customers. And so that kind of changes things. But um, I mean, to me, the, the answer is, is you have to be a brand. So if you're a retailer who sells lots of other people's brands, then you've got to come up with a value proposition that is meaningful in and of itself, not just I have great brands, right? That, that as a value proposition, that's dead. Amazon's definitely killed that. You're not going to bring it back. So you have to have something else that you're promising to your customers and branded manufacturers, right? Vertical manufacturers, they've kind of already got that. They've got the brand promise that they make for their products mm -hmm. and it's a lifestyle promise usually. So it's pretty easy to bring that to life in their stores. Tommy Bahama is a great example of a company that kind of is really living and breathing that right. They have the store, they have the restaurant, they have vacation trips that they put together that are based off of their brand promise, right? Like they, they've got it. This is our brand promise. This is what we're delivering to our customers. And you know, how, what, how does Macy's bring that to customers? They've got to figure that out. And I don't think that they have figured that out. They've tried a couple times, but as far as the brand promise goes, it's still an awful lot of, we have awesome brands. You should come to our stores because we have awesome brands. It's like that, that's just not gonna cut it. So, you know, I think- So yeah, Nikki, you're asking, the, you're, you're asking the soul searching question, what does your brand stand for? Yes. Um, and, and have something there. Gee, do you do you out Kirkland Kirkland? <laughs> do you know what that means? Yeah, I've been hanging out at the Costco Japan store. It's been amazing. Yeah, you don't out Kirk, you don't out Kirkland Kirkland. But I think to to you know what we just talked about, like what what Bruce highlighted, Nikki about experiences and, and identifying your brand, your brand. I think that's the future. But I also think there's there's an interesting side, which which you know I think when we look at retail, the trend is I think we're going to start seeing, and then maybe that's part of the experience, right? We're going to see the continuation of of, a, of being micro focused on on what your experience is so you know for example you walk around new york city you'll see stores that pop up that just sell like i, I saw one that sells candles for each state right and that's all they do they're <laughs> micro focused on that and each each candle has a certain scent right that's associated with that state i guess new york it's like smells like a sewer in boston i was gonna say <laughs> yeah, and you know boston it smells like the grass at fenway or something but but you know you're going to see those, and then you're going to see the. I think some of the big mega vendors or mega retailers who have a big brand who have to fight the Amazons of the world to maintain that. I think the ones in the middle are the ones that are going to struggle. And I think that speaks to I think what Nikki said earlier about part of it is because they also business wise made mistakes in the past ten years, and now they're paying the price for it. 
Now the fact they also don't have that brand truth, if you will, uh, they're going to lose out. So I think there's going to be kind of a, um, a falling out like we always see in these industries, right? You have big players, and then you have to see small niche guys who keep doing well and identify, and they're going to grow to a certain size and then maybe get acquired. I mean, I look, Bruce, you mentioned like, you know, the Tesla store and, and Under Armour. I, I was walking through that mall the other day, and I was, it was eye-opening for me because all of a sudden, who's in there? Bonobos, Warby Parker, right? Wow. So these these, wow. you know, these internet-based retailers are now putting stores. Why? Because they realize to get to the customer, they have to have stores. But they're not opening massive square footage. They're opening, you know, reasonably sized stores with limited inventory for the experience. Like, I walked into Warby Parker. I don't need glasses, but I just want to walk in to see the experience. And it was, it was an experience. It was kind of cool. You try the glasses on. People, you know, they would talk to you. Or, or MGMI, the, the shoe company, right? You walk in there now and and they try to give this experience of how you buy a, a finely Italian shoe, right? Well, I could buy that online, but I go in there and they, they give you that experience, right? But that's super focused, right? To Nikki's point, they get their brand and they're not going to deviate from it today. Now, who knows what happens down the road, but I think if they stick to that, they can survive. And, and that, that is something Amazon, Alibaba, all these guys cannot bring to the table. I don't think so. Uh, I got to tell you, I can, I can talk to you three for another hour. What an amazing, thank you so much to just <laughs> in the conversation. You keep adding to each other's uh, point of view. It's just been fantastic. Uh, I wish this No, was this has been great. We've, we've been live here with three former analysts now at Vendors with their in unique perspective. Um, Bruce Richardson, you can follow him at First Thing Bruce. Nikki Barrett at N-I-K-K-I-B-A-R-R-D. Guy Corton at G-C-O-U-R-T-I-N. So catch them all there. <laughs> so this has been great. Thanks. And uh, as Vala said, you know, uh, as we get back and thinking about retail, supply chain, commerce, luxury brands, uh, we'll bring you guys back on again. So great. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks, you guys guys. Thank you. Ray, what an amazing uh, yeah. episode 101. And uh, next week on episode 102, <laughs> we have Jeff Jonas, founder, CEO of Senzing. We have AJ Aurora, CEO and founder of Vera. And we have Steve Wilson coming back as our resident thought leader, vice president, principal analyst at Constellation Research. Again, talking blockchain security and all these big important issues, including perhaps GDPR and privacy. And Steve is one of the world's top uh, leaders in terms of thought leaders when it comes to these uh, emerging technologies and, 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 and uh, principles. So any closing uh, thoughts, Ray, on... 101, and of course, you know, in the last two years of having 250 somewhat amazing guests. Aubrey, please chime in. Yeah, you know, I think we should bring Aubrey back in. We should spend a little time talking about what your favorite 100 episode highlight was. Uh, so, I don't know. I mean, what, what was yours, Aubrey, since you've been able to see all the facts, how the sausage gets made or how the champagne gets popped? <laughs> what do you think? Um, well, I don't think this is necessarily the highlight, but I just thinking back to episode one on Blab, having Whitney Johnson and having my phone up to the speaker, trying to get her to be people to be able to hear her interview to having 200 and now 36 unique guests, uh, or in a 35 and 12 on the road episodes and 101. Um, it's just amazing that we made it this far and, um, it's been an amazing opportunity. So 
Yeah. Wow. I mean, and, 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 and no, thank you. I mean, for setting up the prep calls, getting everyone, um, you know, prepared online, getting the questions, putting everything together, the content. Uh, this has been wonderful. So thank you, Aubrey. So there is no disrupt TV without you. So you know that. You know that. So, so Molly, what was your favorite episode? <laughs> Molly, what was your what was your episode? You know, you know, it's, what was it's, your memory? We did, we did, so 235 guests, our first guest was Whitney Johnson, um, and Aubrey reminded you and I that uh, we've got some incredible women on our show. Um, certainly Whitney Johnson was the first. We had Kim Stevenson, who had just left the CIO of Intel to uh, run the cloud enterprise business and data center business for Lenovo, and she was an extraordinary guest. Mei Ling Fong uh, was, was a guest. Liz Wiseman, when, when she came out with her new book. Deb Schofield as a VC and mentor for women executive at Brown. Uh, Clara Shea with her new book and talking about the importance of being a social business and, and social selling. Kari Anderson, who's at 3 million views on TED Talk, coming on our show talking about being more quotable and more connected. Perry Hewitt, the first chief digital officer in the entire company, country at Harvard University. So, and Cindy Zhou coming in and talking about digital marketing and blowing our mind away with all our comprehensive research. So, and I can go on and on and on. I, I don't know the exact number, but I suspect a fair amount, maybe 50%. Uh, I, I don't know the number, but we've had some extraordinary thought leaders, um, starting with Whitney Johnson. And, and I, I thank you, Aubrey, for reminding us. Uh, you know, sometimes as you do this week by week by week, you forget to look back and go, my goodness. Why are they coming on Friday afternoon and talking to us? <laughs> so what an honor and a privilege. So, you know, it's, uh, and the last thing is, you know, I, no matter which conference I go to, there's always at least one person that comes to me and says, hey, thank you. I spend my Fridays watching you guys or I listen to your podcast. And, and I, it just takes one of those uh, folks to kind of inspire us to want to do this more. Uh, and that happened to me last, uh, yesterday at, at our event in Boston, I actually had two people come to me and talk about Disrupt TV, which was pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. It's a, it's truly a privilege. So. Ray, what's your highlight? Uh, you know, for me, it's like how we manage to pull it off every week, like especially when we're like not at home, and and I think it's the <laughs> it's the crazy stuff that we did at, at, at that sales conference in New York, right? You know, you know, like interviewing like, you know, Carrie Vannerchuk and Ariana Huffington and um, I mean, and yeah. Seth Godin, like just backstage, right? With, with nothing like but an iPhone. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, that too, like, you know, trying to get the MyFi to work as I'm pulled on the side of the road. <laughs> You've had hundreds of thousands of views of those three guests you just mentioned. And you're right, it was just us talking with an iPhone. So, you know, we're not into like, you know, production quality matters, but it's really the caliber of guests that come on our show that matters more than anything else. Yeah, like we don't need a studio to make it happen. And I think it's just the fact that it's, it's a casual conversation. And, and, and I think that, that to me has been, it's, it's been fun. I mean, this is, and, and as Bala says, I, I, I feel the same way. Like this is the highlight of the week for me. Like you end the week, you know, learning about something new, talking about something new, sharing that with everybody. 
uh, I, I think that's been the best. And, you know, here I am, like, I don't know, what, like 4 a.m. in Tokyo in the middle of, like, the basement of a hotel, <laughs> like, broadcasting. You know, I'm waiting for some guy to pop up. You can see the luggage, like, I don't know, someone left here, like, his whole time. <laughs> you know, but, but it's, it's the content. And, and, and that's, and that I really do appreciate. So. Well, I think it's crazy. So, well, hey, a hundred episodes over a hundred episodes, and I think I've only missed five of them. So, <laughs> and yeah, it was that little thing yeah. like giving birth to your first child. So, but hey, you know, I want to thank everyone. I want to thank everyone for 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 staying with us for a like hundred episodes. You know, here's the hundred more on our end, everybody, and uh, and more importantly, thanks to the folks that that listen in. And, and a wonderful guest that you show up. So, yeah. thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.